You know, a lot of people think America is a free market economy. Like we're just absolutely not a free market economy. We are a centrally planned and centrally controlled economy. Why, like the main detriment of that, I think is that we don't get the creative destruction that is necessary for a healthy economy. And so the Fed just absolutely will not let destruction come to the banking sector. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Swan Signal Live. I'm your host, Sam Callahan. I'm the lead analyst at Swamp Bitcoin. Uh, we have two special guests, some dear friends of mine that are joining the show today to talk all things macro. But before we get into it, I want to bring up Pacific Bitcoin. That's the conference that Swan puts on every year. It's more of a festival. It's a great time in Santa Monica next October. Right now is your time to grab some tickets. Go to the website at PacificBitcoin.com. We're going to have some great speakers lined up. It's going to be awesome satellite events, workshops. So go check it out, PacificBitcoin.com. Um, so macro has been all the talk this year uh, for good reason. We've had bank failures. We've had almost the debt ceiling explode and the government default. Uh, we've had asset prices rip, including Bitcoin is one of the best performing assets on both a risk-adjusted and non-risk-adjusted uh, return profile. And a lot of people are wondering, is this going to continue? Is this the start of the new bull market? And I can't think of two better guests to bring on the show than Dr. Jeff Ross, who's returning once again. And then we have John Haar, who's the managing director at Swan Private. Uh, it's great to have you guys on. We talk all the time, but this is going to be a great conversation. Thanks for having us, Sam. Really appreciate the invite. Yeah, good yeah, to be so on, Sam. Saw... Yeah, John, of course. Uh, we're going to have you on more often, my friend. Um, but I saw today, I saw a headline. It was actually Joe Wisenthal uh, over at Odd Lots, Bloomberg. He's been a uh, Bitcoin critic, I would say, but he's always been kind of neutral and he kind of is open to some ideas. And he had a blog post that I saw today that he talked about how Bitcoin is at $44,000. It's up almost 16% in the last seven days. But Bitcoin interest measured by Google Trends is still very suppressed. Uh, it's almost at the bear market levels. And so what do you make of that uh, dichotomy between the price and interest? Throw it to you, Dr. Jeff. Sure. So, uh, well, first of all, I say the, the, the obvious take home from that is that the bull market hasn't even started yet, right? We're nowhere near euphoric levels. Like it's been a fun ride for those of us who have been holding for a long time and we had to endure the bear market and then the crab market. Now I say we're in the uh, bull crab market. So you can call <laughs> me Dr. Bull Crab if you want. Um, uh, so, so yeah, interest is, is barely even there so far. People are still waiting for this big recession to happen. I'm sure we'll plug into that if that's going to happen or not uh, in 2024. And, um, but, but so, so a couple things I like to think. First of all, what's the interest? General interest is still very low, basically non-existent. Two, what we can learn from past cycles from looking at on-chain activity is that OGs, uh, they always sell into a Bitcoin bull market and they usually accumulate during bear markets traders short-term traders they do the exact opposite they buy into a bull market and they sell into a bear market uh, and so we're just not seeing any of that traditional bull market activity right now the ogs the people who hold bitcoin for the long term they've been in the space for a long time they're not newbies they haven't even considered selling it they're just chilling they're still stacking they, they're on swan you know uh, buying their their daily or weekly or monthly purchase um and uh and and they're they're not selling anytime soon i think they're waiting for probably six digit uh bitcoin which i anticipate by probably the end of this year uh, not excuse me by the end of 2024 not the end of this year um uh, if not sooner um and so so that's that's what i say the bull market has yet to begin 
Yeah, and I'm just reading Joe Weisenthal's tweets here, catching up on it. Um, yeah, I think that is the obvious takeaway that Dr. Jeff said, you know, has a bull market has just begun. Maybe I can give some of my firsthand experience being part of the Swan private team over here. We're definitely seeing new interests, like no doubt that's happening, but it's, it's still early in that cycle as well. I would say we're seeing more uh, people who have already been well aware of Bitcoin. They've been following it for years or at least months at this point. Um, and they've developed some level of conviction. I think they're on top of this. They know what's going on. They know all the factors that are likely to support Bitcoin's price in the coming months and years. Um, so I think they're on top of this. They're buying. But we're not getting like the brand new people in that it, the Bitcoin's price is rallying so much that it's being covered in financial media, that it's on their radar. Um, and another just, you know, this is a very informal indicator, but... I think people like ourselves who are known as the person in their circles who knows something about Bitcoin, um, I don't, I'm, I'm personally not getting those messages yet of like, hey, tell me about this Bitcoin thing again, which definitely did happen in 2021. Um, so yeah, I think it's early phases of this, this bull market. Um, we still have a lot more to go here. I actually did get one of those text messages, John. They were just like, <laughs> Bitcoin eyeballs. <laughs> and I didn't even say anything. I just sent them the, the welcome to Bitcoin course. That's what the beauty of that course is. Cause I'll just send them that. And I don't have to write like a book of a text message. <laughs> so I was like, you know, just go check it out. You know, I, you know, me, I've been talking about this for years. Just go, go listen to that course and let me know what you think. Um, but another thing that I saw today was Jamie Dimon. Apparently there, uh, there's a committee hearing right now and they're just bashing Bitcoin and crypto with Elizabeth Warren. They said, if there's one thing that Jamie Dimon and Elizabeth Warren can agree upon, it's their hatred for Bitcoin. <laughs> and so I wanted to ask you guys, if you could be at that hearing right now, you know, you know, turn on that microphone, what would you say to uh, Jamie Dimon and uh, Elizabeth Warren? I'll, I'll take that one because this is my favorite rebuttal to all of them. I, I would say those are great points. And I well, yeah, I'd say those are great points, but uh, now can you do the US dollar? because <laughs> because you're saying what what's what's crypto first first of all whenever somebody interchanges crypto and bitcoin it means they don't understand what they're talking about right they don't understand that bitcoin is completely different and has nothing relevant to do with proof of stake crypto that's number one so so I, you can just immediately ignore everything they're saying when people like that talk about it because they just don't know what they're talking about two when they do talk about they talk about and i and i heard and I, in fact i was going to um uh, tweet this out but i didn't have time before this post here but um, you know, he talks about money laundering. He talks about, uh, you know, terrorist financing. He talks mm -hmm. about all these horrible things that crypto and what he means is crypto and Bitcoin for, even though he doesn't know what he's talking about. And I would say, okay, now do that exact same exercise for the U.S. dollar. How much of the dollar is used for uh, money laundering and terrorist financing and all of these things that you say are so bad about this? Um, you know, let's let's shine the light back on yourself for a little bit. And, and so Bitcoin gets a hard time for most of the stuff it, it most of the stuff that uh people make fun of bitcoin for or try to deride it for are basically the exact same things that they are doing with the u.s dollar um with their fraudulent activities with their money laundering all that kind of stuff and so i just think it's just completely hypocritical it's all basically all of government marketing is 
take the light off of us. We're going to, we're going to take all of the evil stuff and bad stuff that we do. And we're going to show, we're going to pretend that you do it. And we're going to shine the public's attention onto you so that it takes the focus off of us. I think that's what all of this stuff is about. It's just nonsense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would say if they go the route of this is money for criminals, it's terrorist financing, it's money laundering. I think just like Dr. Jeff said, it's very easy to turn the spotlight back on them and say, you know, can we just have an honest comparison about what's going on in the legacy system? Um, you guys are not doing a good job of stopping money laundering, stopping terrorist financing whatsoever. If anything, you're just grab, you're making honest people put in all their information to a big honeypot um, that gets hacked and you don't actually end up stopping much of that activity that you're attempting to stop. Other ways that I've seen them try to knock Bitcoin. And again, it's hard to even pick apart their arguments because like Dr. Jeff said, um, if they're just lumping everything into Bitcoin and crypto, sometimes they might actually say something that we believe is true, but it only applies to crypto. So if they go the route of saying, oh, this is like a consumer protection thing. Um, look at all these platforms that blew up in the past few years and crypto is so dangerous and they don't have the right guardrails in place. I mean, I could agree with that to a certain extent. But again, it's all about separating Bitcoin versus crypto. It would be like them saying, no one should invest in tech stocks because a bunch of people lost money in pets.com. Um, that's just an absurd statement. You have to separate out different investments that, that are completely different from one another. Um, and at the end of the day, what, like if we just distill the reasons that we're all very passionate about Bitcoin, what does it protect people from? Debasement and censorship. So if you're really... On, up on the hill at one of these hearings talking about how evil Bitcoin is, you have to answer the question as to why would you want to stop people from having an asset that protects them from debasement and censorship? And of course, you'll never get a clear answer from a, a banking CEO who just wants to protect his moat or a sitting U.S. senator who I believe wants to protect her moat, which is oversight, mass surveillance into what Americans are doing. And then potentially, you know, be in bed with the banking industry so that she can have oversight into what the banking industry is doing. I think that's what their true motives are. Yeah, I mean, it's like the quote, it's tough to understand something when your paycheck depends on not understanding it. I'll paraphrase that. Um, but also Bitcoin protects against seizure as well as uh, censorship and debasement. And so it doesn't have that counterparty risk. When people buy Bitcoin, it seems, they're basically taking those dollars out of the system and Jamie Dimon really benefits from that dollar system. And as Dr. Jeff mentioned, once people go into Bitcoin, they seem to hold on to it pretty hard. Uh, about 70% of the supply has been held for a year or longer at this point. That's an all-time high. Uh, so these holders are holding on to their sats. Now, my question is, do you guys think that changes at a certain price level? Because one, one way to look at that is that, yes, people are really bullish. They expect price appreciation, so they're holding on for higher prices. Another way to think about it is maybe people bought near the all-time high, they're deeply underwater, and once prices get up to that all-time high level, so you're going to see more churn as they kind of get out of their positions um, after being underwater for a couple of years. Maybe they're not like believers yet, but they're like, I'm not going to sell at a loss. Do you expect that number to decline as we approach uh, the previous all-time high around like, you know, 69,000, 65,000, so to speak? 
I'll, I'll start with that one because um, this is something I've pondered a lot, especially being in a, a client facing role where I talk to clients every week and some of them share with me how they their own plan for what they expect to do uh, in, in the future, what they expect for Bitcoin price cycles. Um, and if you just look historically, you guys can tell me if you agree with this or not. But I would say, generally speaking, not that many people take profits or even attempt to take profits towards the top of uh, a Bitcoin bull cycle. Yeah, there's some people that do it and they probably make a big noise about it on Twitter because they were successful. But generally speaking, things are so euphoric at the begin at the top of these cycles that a lot of people are getting in for the first time. The people who already got in, um, it just seems like it's going to keep going forever. So part of me thinks that that will continue because it's just so much easier said than done. There, there's no sign that appears in the sky that tells all of us, hey, guys, this is the top of the cycle. Um, and then the fact that you have new people coming in, um, I, I just I have a hard time seeing that a lot of people are going to attempt to sell um, once they get above water because there's always new narratives as well. And I would love to get into this in the conversation. I kind of have a list of like eight to 10 things that are just super positive factors that are going to support Bitcoin's price in the coming months and years. Um, and I think people become aware of those. There must be some reason why they're investing and allocating funds to Bitcoin. And as they're doing that, those narratives, I think, get um, better communicated throughout the Bitcoin ecosystem. So they have some belief that they're, you know, they're, they're investing in this for a reason. Um, I, I, I just don't think as many people go into it with the trader mindset of I'm going to take profits here. I think the average person goes into it with a longer term mindset. I'm, I'm painting with broad strokes here. Obviously, there's some people with a trader mindset, but in general, I think most people come in with a long term mindset and they're not looking to you know sell at a certain point in time. Dr. Jeff, how about you? Yeah, I guess it goes back. Like I, I hear the points John's making. I, I think going back to what I said before, when you look on chain, you can see that OGs do tend to sell into the bull market once it gets going. Uh, so my take on it is that basically once we hit a new all-time high, we'll start to see OGs trickle into sell in, into becoming sellers and add their uh, Bitcoin to the um, you know the marginable supply. Uh, I think that increases over 100k. You know I, who are the kind of people that are doing this? These are people who got into Bitcoin back in. 2011 through say 2015 or so, um, their cost basis may be a couple hundred dollars or less. And they're like, you know what, I could sell, you know, a tiny fraction of my stack right now, maybe one or 2% and I could pay off my mortgage or I could buy that, you know, second home I've been thinking about or whatever. Um, I think it's, I think that's what we see in those kind of things. But I think the people to John's point who are sort of newer, maybe in the last five years or so, they probably aren't going to be selling. Obviously the traders will, but the people who plan on holding for the long haul, uh, you know, the dollar cost averaging clients, they're probably going to hold through this entire cycle and they're going to ride it up and they're going to ride it down and they're going to you know probably wish they had sold some at the top but then they're going to ride it through and they're going to become true hardened bitcoiners um and they'll be the og of the next cycle so um that's that's my take on it i, th I think that the supply will actually so we've seen that falling supply on the margin which is fantastic and i think it portends to um pretty pretty nice supply uh, demand dynamics going forward for this cycle and if demand increases as we probably all expect fairly um aggressively uh that only can mean that the price will respond aggressively and probably to the upside so i'm, I'm looking forward to what's coming in the next couple of years the crab has turned bullish bull crab the bull crab 
Well, this past month has been interesting because it's been a basically an everything rally. I mean, bonds have rallied, stocks have rallied, gold uh, hit a new all-time high. Bitcoin obviously is ripping. Um, do you guys think that it's all related around interest rate expectations now that you know the Fed has had messaging that they're going to you know, maybe stop cutting rates or at least put an extended pause where they are? They're not going to keep cutting or raising rates. At least that's the messaging they're giving us. And do you think the market's just responding that the whole month of November with all these asset classes rallying basically together? I'll, I'll give my two cents on it. And then I'm sure Dr. Jeff, part of his answer is going to be um, how he looks at liquidity. Um, I always love when Dr. Jeff talks about liquidity on Cafe Bitcoin. Um, but I think there, I think what you said, Sam, is certainly a factor. This Fed pause rally seems like it's the end of a hiking cycle. Kind of makes sense that financial assets would perform well on the back of that. I think there's one other factor that is people have been talking about recession coming for <clears throat> quite a long time now. And it just hasn't happened in the way that people have forecasted it. You know, maybe there's been slowdowns, there's been layoffs. We did have two quarters of negative real GDP growth, even according to the official numbers, but it just hasn't been the big recession that many people have called for. And I think that because so many people were calling for a big recession to happen, a lot of investors, capital allocators out there were positioning their portfolios in anticipation of something bad to happen uh, economically. And I think that means, you know, keeping cash on the sidelines and more conservative investments. And that's also helped by the fact that they could get 5% in a money market fund. And now I think you might be starting to see a reversal of some of that. I don't want to call it a total capitulation yet, but I think you might be starting to see a reallocation of some of those people who were positioned very conservatively. And they're saying, okay, maybe this recession narrative is, is I'm not believing it as much anymore. They just watched um, stocks, you know, do really well so far this year in 2023. Um, last I checked, QQQ is up like 40 something percent. The S&P is up low 20s percent. Um, and some of this might be them chasing returns, right? I'm not saying that just because they're reallocating into these things means it's the right thing to do. But they might be looking at it saying, I was just positioned conservatively for the last six to nine months. It didn't really pay off. I'm not seeing this recession. I'm going to shift and go into a little bit further out the risk curve. So I think that plus the the Fed pause could be um, reasons for why we're seeing markets do what they're doing. Yeah, uh, I think those are great points. And and so kind of to piggyback on that, uh, you know, a couple observations from past recessions were basically once you see that the treasury market, the long term, the 10 year yields are the best thing to look at, I think once you see those peak and then roll over, uh, you get this little period where it's really interesting where people are buying bonds. So that's pushing uh, treasury yields lower and they're buying stocks. You get a bit of a blow off top uh, in equities, especially in NASDAQ type stocks. So it's very possible that this is happening. In fact, I think the, the, the peak happened in 10-year uh, yields around mid-October. I want to say like around the 19th or so of October. If it's based on the 2000 and the 2008 cycles, what happened after the 10-year yield peaked is it took somewhere between two to four months, if you kind of uh, blend those two time periods together, where stocks ripped higher 
before then they they plummeted it after that so it's very possible we're having a bit of a blow off top right here the other thing to consider is that it's also possible that we're not going to have the recession that everybody thinks we're going to have it's possible and i'm increasingly leaning to into this camp that we're actually going to have the soft landing that everybody kind of you know all, everybody who's smart kind of smirks and, and giggles a little bit and says <laughs> you're so naive you think it's possible to have a soft landing look at all these times where people thought it was going to be a soft landing and it wasn't i actually think it's possible this time around and i think it's possible we don't get a recession i was as you guys probably know and, and maybe you were in the same camp as me i was fully expecting a recession in 2022 and into the early parts of 2023 and it took me about a year to be like okay something funny is happening like why are we not getting this catastrophic recession that it looks looks like everything is setting up for. I would argue that we were on our way to having the catastrophic recession uh, in March of 2023 when the banks were starting to fail. Uh, and then the Fed stepped in and did the bank term funding program and they did their kind of special maneuvers. It also happened a little bit before that with the guilt crisis in, I think it was September yeah. of 2022. Um, it, special things were done then that basically broke the dollar and broke the treasury yields. And then the Fed liquidity uh, spike happened in March of 2023. I think those things are the reason why we haven't gone into a major recession. So um, I think they handle that. If, if you're into that sort of thing, they probably handled it well by pushing it down the road and pushing it down the road far enough. I think it's possible that we will, you know, we've been in a manufacturing contraction for over a year now in the US, but the services sector continues to be uh, expansionary. So in the services sector, the US is, is a basically a 70% to 30% or so um, services to manufacturing type economy. It's the services sector that continues to keep us out of a recession. And I just think that continues. I don't really see that changing anytime in the near future. And it looks to me when you, when you look at kind of the indicators and PMIs and those sort of things, I think we're at or close to a bottom in the manufacturing contraction. And if that spikes back up and turns expansionary again, while services are still expansionary, we're not going to have a major recession. And I think we could, we might see unemployment pop up into the low 4% and people will be calling for, you know, because that's a greater than 0.5% uh, um, increase from the, from the lows. I, I still don't think that means we're in a, a serious recession. I think I, my, my base case for 2024 is just kind of a low growth environment, low GDP, inflation won't be spiraling out of control. And so that coming full circle makes me kind of bullish for risk assets as we head into 2024 as well. I, I don't see the, the government stopping their fiscal spending uh, anytime soon. I think they're going to be doing a ton of uh, new treasury ins issuance and we'll see how that goes. But I think there's actually a market for that now and we can get all that kind of stuff. So long story short, that's why I'm bull crabbish. I'm sort of sideways to up in general. Uh, and I, and I, and I'm not seeing massive, you know, like lighted up kind of growth, but I definitely think we still have low grade growth and we don't head into a major recession. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of that or maybe all of that. And I think, um, I, I don't, I don't want to play semantics, but I think it's up for debate as to like, is that a, a soft landing or is that just a delayed hard landing? You know, like I could argue it either way. Cause I agree with what you said, Dr. Jeff, it's like, you kind of alluded to this. They didn't really solve these problems. They just kind of kicked the can much further down the road than, than people have thought. And I've kind of been putting together a list here of um, why this might be the slowest walk into recession potentially in history. Um, because most people would look at this and say, look, we just had very low interest rates and they've been raised. We all saw the stats at the you know fastest pace, at the, I think, in U.S. history this has to lead to a recession. That's what people have been saying for many, many months now. 
But you look at what else happened during the last few years, and let's take a look at what preceded those rate hikes. In 2020 and 2021, corporations, both investment grade and high yield, issued record levels of debt and at record low coupons. So they got themselves funded for quite some time. Um, those uh, corporate debt maturities don't really begin in a significant way until 2025, 2026. So can kick down the road for the corporate sector. The housing market, everyone remembers, was on fire in 2020, 2021. So many people locked in 30-year mortgages at a very low rate. They're, those people are not really affected by the increase in interest rates. And I should have said that for the corporate sector. The increase in interest rates doesn't really affect a company that just issued you know, what they normally would have issued over the course of like five years. They issued it all in 2020 and 2021. They're okay that corporate yields are rising because they don't need to issue as much in the coming years. Same thing for someone who locked in a 30-year mortgage in 2021. You know, mortgage rates go up. It doesn't affect them as much. Um, massive government deficit spending. We all know what happened in 2020 and 2021, whether it was stimulus checks directly to individuals, whether it was PPP lending. Um, another thing kind of in this category, which I just became aware of recently from, a, from an astute Cafe Bitcoin listener, actually, um, he let me know that small businesses were given hundreds of billions of dollars in emergency funding from the government. This is from the SBA, the Small Business Association, something called the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program. So these terms, I mean, get a load of this, 30 years, fixed 3.75% rate, and there were no payments due on them for the first two years. So, I mean, talk about another can that's kicked down the road. And at first, I, I was incorrect on this. I thought it was only the large corporations who were benefiting from those easy times in 2020, 2021, easy monetary conditions, I should say. But small businesses through this program also got to kick the can down the road. So again, another thing that's going to lead to a slow walk into a recession. And then you have to look at what happened during the rate hikes. And Dr. Jeff alluded to this. Uh, we get a new Fed acronym made up program on a Sunday, uh, BTFP, Bank Term Funding Program, that effectively insulates the banks from the effects of the rate hikes. Because you remember what that program is. The banks have treasuries that are underwater. That's causing a problem for them um, from an asset liability perspective. It's, it's literally leading to bank runs. Those banks, instead of having to sell the treasuries, and basically have what would have happened, what did happen to the gilt market before the Bank of England stepped in. Um, they get to pledge those treasuries. Treasury could be at 70, 80 cents on a dollar. They get to pledge it at par and, and get a loan at par. So basically it's like, hey, you banks, you get to pretend like the rate hikes never happened. And then the last point, which Dr. Jeff also hit on is we're deficit spending at, at somewhere between six, seven, 8% of GDP right now. That's typically, you don't see that level unless you're already in a recession. So we have this weird dynamic where the US federal government is deficit spending like preemptively before we even go into the recession. So I know I just went into a, a ton of stuff there, but I think for those many reasons, that's why this recession that people have been calling for is just not coming. And then one final point I'll throw out there is, um, not to get too philosophical, but I think you two guys know that I often harp on this point that there's no such thing as prices, like in a singular measure of CPI. And people attempt to do it. That doesn't really exist. There's no such thing as the cost of living. There's also no such thing as the economy. Um, and Lynn Alden has done a great job of this. 
saying that it's a tale of two economies. There are some people who are definitely being hurt by higher interest rates. No doubt. I'm not trying to minimize the effect of that, but it's just been a tale of two economies. If you're Microsoft, you issued a ton of debt at low coupons, you generate a ton of free cash flow, you put that cash flow at 5%, you're actually earning net income. Um, that's completely different than a 23 year old who just graduated college, didn't have the money to buy a house in 2021. House prices went up however much they did. Now mortgages are 7% and he or she is priced out of owning a home. Completely you know, different thing. So I think it's uh, important to remember that it, it's simplistic to talk about how is the economy doing, but it's obviously much more complicated than that under the hood. I mean, that was a great summary of all the ways that the economy is kind of staying afloat. Um, I would say that, and some people have argued this, um, like Paulo Macro is a Twitter account. And he's talked about this a long time is how the U.S. is becoming like an emerging market. So it's not really a soft landing. It's an emerging market landing. So you're going to have excessive deficit spending, rising bond yields, currency debasement, elevated inflation, hot nominal growth, but low real growth, highly politicized monetary and fiscal policymaking and weakening rule of law. And so I think that's kind of what we expect going forward. It keeps everything afloat, but it has long-term consequences. And John, you had a great summary of the bank term funding program. That's set to expire, I think, in March or April. I just saw a chart, updated chart of the unrealized losses on these banks' balance sheets. They're still there. They're still there. And that's set to expire in a year. Do you think they just extend that or what happens if they actually let it expire? Do you think we'll have another banking crisis similar to March? Because I don't like the problem hasn't been fixed. Like these banks are still sitting on massive bond positions that are underwater. Um, they just kind of been papered over with this new this new program. So what happens when it expires uh, next spring? Yeah, there's nothing more permanent than a temporary government program, Milton Friedman. Um, that would be my gut instinct is that this cannot expire. This becomes a permanent program. If I try to play the other side of it, it maybe it's possible that it actually could expire. But the reason is because they threw another piece of duct tape somewhere else in the system. And let me explain that. So effect, one of the other things that happened during March of 2023 in what I think now we can call a U.S. banking crisis was that FDIC insurance was effectively unlimited. Um, if FDIC insurance was applied the way we're supposed to, we were before that thought it applied, it would have been a $250,000 cap. Um, that's not what happened in First Republic, for example. Um, depositors were bailed out. I think it's fair to say that was a depositor bailout. It was different than the GFC, the great financial crisis, because back then the banks were bailed out, meaning the, the debt holders and the equity holders in the banks were bailed out in most cases, not in all cases. And the depositors were bailed out as a result of that. In the 2023 banking crisis, the depositors were effectively bailed out, um, but the stockholders and the bondholders were not. So I think you have to ask yourself this question with this effective unlimited FDIC insurance now, um, because they're not, they're just not going to let a bank fail and tell people, oh, you had, you know, a small business with a few million dollars in this bank and it failed. Like, sorry, FDIC insurance is 250. Here's your 250. You lost everything else. They show that they're not willing to do that. And because they effectively uncapped it, does that make the average person say, okay, I'm no longer scared to pull money out of my bank? 
because you have to remember that the real trigger for a bank to potentially experience a bank run and collapse is people pulling their funds out of the bank. So if you effectively uncapped FDIC insurance, does that mean enough people will say, okay, good enough for me. I don't care if my bank, you know, has a, a, a bad loan book or whatever it is. Maybe, maybe. But again, my gut would be that they're going to have to keep ETFB going. Hmm. Doc? Yeah, I just agree with everything John said. There's no way they're going to let the program stop. And if they do, they're just going to find some little secret backdoor way to keep it going. Uh, and then the other, just to, to John's point, you know, a lot of people think America is a free market economy. Like we're just absolutely not a free market economy. We are a centrally planned and centrally controlled economy. Why? Like the main detriment of that, I think, is that we don't get the creative destruction that is necessary for a healthy economy. And so the Fed just absolutely will not let destruction come to the banking sector. So, you know, we had we had it happening. All the all the fireworks were starting. Uh, we were seeing stuff roll over and then they come, you know, come in like Superman and, and do this bank term funding program and do these other options to, to increase liquidity and to save the banks. Because of that, you don't get the creative destruction, and all that does is it kills future growth. So we're, you know, we're pulling forward uh, future growth, future earnings, future profits, those kind of things, and we're we're taking them today to preserve the crappy companies that basically should go down. When you have that in, a, in an economy, you just can't grow, and and we just have that going over and over and over again, and it's mm -hmm. only getting worse year after year. And Bitcoin and crypto nonsense um, perform really well is when liquidity is abundant and when it's getting withdrawn, um, uh, which it did throughout 2022. That's when we see uh, a reversal of all those things. So, it's it's a uh, it's fun to talk about the economy, but but you know some things matter more for risk assets and even Bitcoin um, than what the underlying economy is doing. Yeah, I mean, uh, sorry, Johnny, you want to go? It's just, just one real quick point. Um, I, I think that is what Dr. Jeff highlighted there is huge and probably doesn't get enough airtime, but it's a difficult one to talk about. This idea that the government's just like gradually getting more involved in the economy as time goes on, becoming more command and control, even if not full command and control, just more involvement, whether it's from the creative destruction not happening. So you have some big allegedly private company, but again, they wouldn't be in existence if it weren't for all these different government programs and manipulated interest rates. And then you also have the fact that um, spending keeps going up. I know I've seen a chart at some point in the last year that showed percentage of um, people's income in the US that comes from some sort of government transfer payment. And it's just a line that keeps going up and up and up over time. And one thing that you can get from this um, excessive government involvement in the economy is you can make economic statistics look like they're doing okay. Like you'll, if the government's going to spend 8% deficit spend, 8% of GDP every year and do even more. Yeah. Like you're going to get more GDP. I, I hesitate to even call it GDP growth because it's not like the real growth that we would think of private companies producing real goods and services that people want. You can kind of puff up the economic statistics for a long time. Um, under this approach. But again, it's hard to talk about because we're really talking about like a counterfactual here. The three of us would make the argument that if the government got out of the way and you let real creative destruction, ha destruction happen, um, the economy would grow much better. But you're making this counterfactual argument and it becomes def uh, difficult because you can't just point to something tangible and say, hey, this is exactly what would happen if you got out of the way. So it becomes a little bit more theoretical and it's, it's harder to get through to people. Yeah. 
I think we do know what happens when the government gets too involved, though. I mean, I'm just reminded of emerging market economies again. I think of Argentina. And I, I heard an interesting stat from Stanley Druckenmiller that during the pandemic, the Fed financed 60% of the bonds that were issued by the Treasury during that time period. And Argentina did the same thing. Um, and if we look at Argentina right now, they have that new president. And just in general, with like nation state adoption of Bitcoin, I, I was curious to hear your guys' thoughts. Um, because Samson Mao, he works at Jan3. He, he's always talking to politicians, trying to advocate for Bitcoin adoption at the nation state level. He had a tweet yesterday. He's teasing. He's like, we got a big announcement, you know, coming up at the end of the year. Um what are the odds, do you think, of, of a nation state going the route of El Salvador? We've seen them have positive results uh, since they've adopted Bitcoin. I mean, their growth is up. They're paying down their debt. They have one of the best uh, bond performance since they've done it. I mean, Goldman Sachs actually put out a report and said, like, yeah, we missed this one. Um, so Samson's saying that maybe something's coming down the pipeline. You have excitement over Argentina. What do you guys think around nation state adoption in Bitcoin? I mean, I'll, I'll just say I'm I'm uh, cautiously optimistic about it. You know, I don't want to get overly optimistic. I don't. I try to not get too excited until I actually see the hard data. So so we'll see what happens. But it's hard to ignore what's happening in El Salvador. To your point, Sam. I mean, it's been an awesome case study. Everybody was mocking it, of course, during the bear market, and now they're like, oh, whoa, maybe there's something to this. Um, you just can't help because Bitcoin is an honest ledger, an honest unit of account. You can't help but to have just a fantastic ledger when it's Bitcoin based. Uh, it helps, you know, corporations, it helps individuals, and it helps nation states as well. So it's been a, a really great case study to watch. I think it bodes well. I think Central and South America are going to be because El Salvador was the first and uh, with Bukele, um, and then having uh, you know Max Kaiser and Stacey Herbert as advisors and Safedine, I think, is an advisor as well to Bukele. Um, that helps, right? It, it keeps the, the crypto nonsense out of it and it helps them to stay serious and stay focused. They're seeing what can happen firsthand. And I think the other nations around them are uh, taking note for sure. Uh, and we, we talked a little bit about what's going on in the Middle East. I think I think Middle Eastern uh, uh, nations are taking note of it and lots of Central and South American countries. I would not be surprised if Samson's announcement was Argentina for sure. Malay is the kind of guy who would who would uh, say that and and try hard to push it through. Um, I think it would be awesome. I would love to see Argentina get back to its glory days, right? It used to be an amazing country with, with freedom and with incredible resources. And it's just a beautiful country. Um, I would love nothing more than to see socialism get purged, uh, at least for a long period of time and for a, a Bitcoin standard to get brought about. I think it would do just almost miraculous things for the country and for its people. Yeah, I would also say cautiously optimistic. I think it's important to keep in mind with um, really any governments and all governments are a little different, but governments themselves are typically not a monolith. So there's so many stakeholders within a government that have to be convinced before you're going to do something like make Bitcoin legal tender, um, aka what uh, Bikele and El Salvador did. I think there's probably an analogy we could draw to what Sailor has done at MicroStrategy because you could have made the same argument. Uh, corporations, there's so many stakeholders, they have these processes, they're bureaucratic. Well, you know, there's there's varying degrees of, of processes and, and bureaucratic nature at different companies. And now we've all learned that Sailor had a pretty unique setup where he had a good amount of control over that company. Did he have to convince a bunch of people to be on board with his plan? Yes, he did. But was it a lot easier for him to do that at MicroStrategy than it would be for like, 
you know, whoever for Google to make an, an investment of their corporate treasury in Bitcoin, like, yeah, it was much easier for Sailor to do it. You could probably say the same thing about El Salvador. Um, yes, they're a, a nation state, but they probably had a smaller nation state, um, probably had an easier path to make it legal tender than a larger country. And I don't know enough about Argentina to say how difficult that path is. Um, they certainly have one thing going for them is that they have so many other things they've tried that have failed that, you know, their country has been willing to vote in someone who's an outspoken libertarian, a narco capitalist wants to take a chainsaw to the central bank and whatever other government programs. So I guess when you've tried so many things and seen them fail, you're willing to try something else. But at the very least, I would say Argentina specifically, even if they don't make it legal tender, the fact that they just elected a president who is outspoken about central banking, he literally calls it a scam, um, outspoken about legal tender laws. Uh, I believe he has said some positive things about Bitcoin directly, that it's a, it's a response to the central banking scam, I believe is, is something that he said. Mm -hmm. At the very least, that should spur more awareness and potentially adoption in Argentina and other South American countries, even if they don't make it legal tender next month. Yeah, I'm actually kind of bearish on Argentina itself making it legal tender just because of their IMF debt. You know, they're mm -hmm. kind of beholden to their lenders. I, Argentina is the largest um, borrower from the IMF by far. I mean, it's like $44 billion and they can withhold disbursements if they don't agree with the policy choices. And that would be catastrophic, uh, given how much debt they have. And um, he's already meeting with the IMF. And the IMF, uh, when they gave out their last disbursement, they had a provision in the clause to prevent Argentinian banks from allowing crypto uh, to be serviced on the soil. So I think the IMF will kind of put their foot down. I think it'll be dollarization. The hope is, I think, that Malay would just not... Uh, restrict Bitcoin adoption. Like that's what I think is more logical right now. I think maybe down the road it could happen. Uh, but I just think the IMF is is kind of in control there just because how much debt they have. But Dr. Jeff, you brought up a great point with the, the Middle East because I'm extremely bullish on Bitcoin mining uh, in the Middle East. You have Oman and, and Bhutan and the UAE just partnered with Marathon where they're actually like state-sponsored uh, Bitcoin mining operations or the sovereign wealth fund in the UAE is the one that uh, invested in the marathon project in the UAE. And, and so it's extremely bullish because they're not just interested in Bitcoin, but they're seeing Bitcoin mining as a way to stabilize their grid, harness stranded energy, you know, incentivize other renewable energy projects. And they're seeing the benefits on the ground there. And of course, that leads to Bitcoin adoption. And so that's really exciting to me. I, I'm really bullish on the Middle East in general in terms of Bitcoin nation state adoption. Um, I wanted to pivot the conversation a little bit to just, uh, you know, everyone wants to talk about the ETF. So why don't we just go down there a little bit? Um, people think that it's this is kind of driving the price excitement around the ETF. Uh, they think it's going to get approved in January. Um, what do you guys think happens if it doesn't get approved in January? <laughs> because the whole market seems to be kind of pricing this in right now. And I'm a little bit worried about some kind of shock happening if they come up with another reason to deny them or, or, or something, maybe they delay or something. You know, What do you guys think would happen then? And what are the probabilities you think that will happen? Sure, I'll just jump in quickly. Um, I think initially it would be a, a negative shock. I think the price would get hit. Um, who knows how much, maybe 10, 20% or something. But I think at, at this point, it, it's my take that most of the market participants 
are in agreement that approval is inevitable. Even if it's not imminent, it's inevitable by the SEC. And so I think even if they had that initial shock, I think it would quickly kind of recover and people would be like, well, okay, so it's not now. And it would depend what the announcement is, right? I mean, the SEC could be like, hey, we need another month or, or you know, the deadline's been, you know, moved to March or something like that. I could see that would be the most likely thing they do is kick the can down uh, a couple months down the road. If they were just like, you know, we're laying the hammer down. Elizabeth Warren is correct. Jamie Dimon is right. Uh, we are, there's no chance we're going to approve it uh, for the rest of 2024. That would be a big hit for sure. I will say though, I think, you know, there's been building excitement for that. I'm not convinced that's that's the reason why there's been such a strong bid under Bitcoin. I actually wonder if it's related to the what you just alluded to earlier, Sam, is, is action in the Middle East. Like, is there a bid? Is there some sovereign wealth fund that's buying, you know, a few million dollars of day or not a few million, tens of million, you know, and, and putting this large bid underneath the price? Um, that's definitely possible, uh, I think. And, and then just one final, uh, capstone on that we're all focused or i have been at least really focused on central and south america and that's awesome and i really want to see uh, adoption from from them all across the board and it will be very net good for them uh, and their leaders in that it's fun watching el salvador all that kind of stuff but to your point they are just deeply indebted to the imf they are in horrible financial condition kind of across the board throughout central and south america they really need bitcoin the middle east is it's a totally different story. They are not totally in debt. They, they're the they're the people who are making loans out to people. They have money coming out their ears because of resources and their sovereign wealth funds. If they get into Bitcoin, they're going to be able to put billions and billions and billions of dollars into it quickly. Uh, and you know they don't have to pay off any debt to to start building up their stack. So that's to me very exciting. If you you get them on board. And then one last point, and then I'll stop because I want to hear what John has to say. I keep going on these tangents. The, the sort of the unsaid part of getting the Middle East on board is the entire nation of Islam, which is a huge religion. And they basically all kind of move in one monolithic block as far as how they think about things like money and Bitcoin. It becomes generally accepted from the leadership on down that Bitcoin is uh, appropriate for their laws and their their lifestyles. You're, you're in almost instantly onboarding over a billion people into the Bitcoin network. It's almost as if the Pope were to say, you know what, I'm pro-Bitcoin, let's go. You Catholics should be stacking sats. Suddenly there's 2 billion Catholics around the world that are stacking sats. That's no joke. Like people, I think, underestimate the effects that that would have. And so um, I'm not touting Islam, obviously, or anything like that. But But if that were to be accepted, that would be just a massive boon to the Bitcoin network. Yeah, and shout out to, uh, there's a piece Alan Farrington wrote in 2021 called Bitcoin is Halal. Um, I have not read that in a while, but shout out to that piece. I, I believe he made the case that it is uh, it, it aligns with uh, Islamic finance. So uh, check that out if anyone wants to read that. Um, yeah, my thoughts on ETF, I, I think Dr. Jeff kind of nailed it. it. It would be negative. Depends what the announcement is. Is it just hey, not going to happen in January, but it's likely to happen in March or September. Um, based on what I'm seeing, and this is just kind of me reading secondary sources in financial media, um, I don't feel like I have a great edge on the probabilities and what's going on inside the SEC. But it seems like very unlikely that they're going to come out with an announcement that says, oh, we found this new thing that delays it forever or indefinitely. <clears throat> that seems to be pretty unlikely. 
Um, but even if it were to be delayed for, let's say it's delayed for another year or until September 2024, in my opinion, there's still a bunch of things that are positive catalysts for Bitcoin or things that would support Bitcoin's price. Um, I'll just list off a few of them now. One is that the halving um, is set to happen in April 2024. I know that there are huge debates over how much the halving actually affects the price, but at least historically speaking, it has coincided with increases in Bitcoin's price. And at the very least, there seems to be some sort of uh, psychological self-fulfilling prophecy type thing going on there. Um, but I know there's a lot of debate on that topic. Um, the Fed being done hiking rates, or we think that they're done hiking rates, like we talked about earlier in the show, I think that's supportive of Bitcoin and other financial assets. I think there's more awareness about the unsustainable path of the U.S. federal deficit spending, um, kind of an emerging market type spend deficit spending and debt accumulation scenario that you were talking about, Sam, or mm -hmm. how does Luke Groman call it? He's U.S. with Argentine characteristics, something like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's another one. I think there's something to be said about the fact that significant selling pressure on Bitcoin has passed. And that comes from came from two main places. One, it came from these platforms in 2022 that were collapsing left and right. Um, we know what all that all of them are, Voyager, Celsius, BlockFi, uh, FTX, et cetera, et cetera. That caused tremendous selling pressure to Bitcoin. Um, the price falling also um, caused selling pressure from Bitcoin miners. So when there's just a lot of entities out there that have to sell Bitcoin, it, it can be hard for enough buyers to come in and support the price. And I think that's one of the big things we saw that happened in 2022 that led to that persistent bear market. Um, also on the positive side, I just see tons of people and entities firsthand every week making allocations to Bitcoin. They're not all doing it by saying, hey, I, I think the ETF is going to get approved. Yes, that's one factor, but it's not the only factor. Um, hence me going through this list. I think um, you have to note that if, if we were to end the year now, and it's only a few weeks till the end of the year, if Bitcoin price stays about where it is now, I mean, even if it drops a lot, it's going to be the best performing macro asset for seven out of the last 10 calendar years. And I think that just gets incrementally more difficult for financial advisors, RIAs, whoever out there, family offices, to just completely ignore this thing and say, oh, don't touch it. I don't have an opinion on it, et cetera, et cetera. It just gets more difficult when you look at the last 10 calendar years of performance. Um, we talked about Argentina. That feels like more of kind of like a PS to me and not a huge factor, but it's worth noting it. And then lastly, sorry, it's a long list of, of, of uh, positive factors for Bitcoin's price. But um, lastly, there's gotta be something said for the technical innovations that are happening on top of Bitcoin. And I think there's a few different things to unpack there. Innovations in terms of just ease of use, whether it's hardware wallets, whether it's lightning wallets, mobile wallets that allow people to have a much more seamless experience when you're buying Bitcoin, uh, taking it into self-custody and then potentially using it as a medium of exchange. Anyone who's been in Bitcoin since you know 2017 can say we, the progress that's been made there is just you know absolutely massive. Um, companies have just made it so much easier to interact with and use Bitcoin. But then there's also even more technically impressive innovations uh, on top of Bitcoin, like Miniscript, um, Arc, uh, co Covenants potentially being introduced by Softforks and, and companies that are working on that and, and products that can kind of be built around that. And why that's important, other than making Bitcoin more usable, which, which is critical, 
But I think there's another thing that is beneficial here is that VC investor money might see this and say, oh, Bitcoin isn't boomer coin like they told me it was. And I should, you know, I made this investment in OpenSea, an NFT platform, which is just insane to me that like VCs were running to invest in OpenSea, but they're like barely investing in Bitcoin. And I know, Sam, you're well aware of this, but some of the charts on like VC money that went into crypto in 2021 and early 2022 versus VC money that went into Bitcoin, crypto just absolutely dwarfed it. And I think with crypto blowing up so spectacularly in 2022, plus all these new innovations that are happening on top of Bitcoin and Bitcoin being shown to be much more stable, I I think um, even the VC community is coming around to that. So that'll mean more dollars. Um, going into improving the Bitcoin experience and maybe even those those VCs adopting Bitcoin themselves as they see this all happening. So I know I just went through a ton there, but that's kind of my view um, because answering the question of what happens if the ETF doesn't get approved, my sense is, yeah, it's a short-term negative, but there's still many, many things under the surface that um, make me positive for Bitcoin's price in the coming months and years. Well, I'm I'm bullish. I'm more bullish now after listening to that. I, I always love like the Bitcoin is halal because like if for anyone doesn't understand like receiving or getting paid interest in the Islamic religion is like a bad sin, like a very bad sin. And so Bitcoin obviously doesn't because it's not dead. So uh, Bitcoin is halal money. <laughs> I just think it's a fantastic idea. Um, and then I wanted to ask like one question just to wrap up. You know, you brought up a lot of reasons to be bullish heading into 2024. And maybe that's going to be in part of your answer here. But I was wondering, you know, this has been a pretty, it's been a drawn out bear market, to be honest with you. There's been a lot of explosions left and right uh, in the broader crypto industry, ton of news. Um, It's been a very long bear market. What has kind of kept you guys going uh, in terms of your conviction of Bitcoin? Like, why do you wake up every day and still work to push Bitcoin's adoption and teach people about it? So, Dr. Jeff. Yeah, that's a pretty loaded question. You know, um, I actually just tweeted yesterday that I'm actually almost bored talking about price action now. This is my third cycle. The first one, I was a DGN crypto trader who, you know, I got into Bitcoin in like 2015 when it was only a few hundred dollars. Still remember when it reached a thousand dollars and how amazing that was. Still remember when it reached parity with an ounce of gold and I couldn't even believe it. Like that was just unbelievable that that happened. So that's how early I was. And then how stupid I was, was that I, I back in when exchanges, you actually had to, uh, if you wanted to buy crypto nonsense, you had to actually exchange your Bitcoin for it. You couldn't just, you know, take dollars for it. You had to, you had to get onto exchanges, usually buy Bitcoin and then swap Bitcoin for whatever crypto. So I had this just stupid diversified portfolio of like 50 cryptos all around the ICO time. And I just, you know, thought I was brilliant because like you just like sneeze and the, and the price is up 20% or 50% or 100%. Anyways, you know, I think I've told my story before about how it it skyrocketed uh, um, by the end of the cycle in 2017, early 2018. um, You know, I made a bunch of money, but then it quickly dropped 95% or more uh, across the board. And I was left with zero Bitcoin. And then in April, I got hit with a tax bill that was like, you know, knock your socks off, like uh, earth shattering uh, tax bill, which was awesome. And I was like, what in the heck? So it took me, that was my school of stupid. So even though I say I was a, a I, I'm from the class of 2015. Uh, I, I got held back all the way until 2019 until I finally understood 
understood Bitcoin mm. in depth and then just went, you know, pure, pure Bitcoin after that and started teaching people about it. What gets me up in the morning is the fact that it truly is better money for a better world. Like I think about this all the time and the, the implications and how putting on my doctor hat for a bit, the fiat standard and the fiat currency lifestyle is so stressful. It's this hamster wheel that never stops and it just spins over more and more and more and faster and faster and faster. And I see people, especially today with inflation being an issue over the last couple of years where their jo- their single job doesn't pay the bills. And so now they're getting two jobs and now you're in a family, a husband and wife, and between them, they have three jobs or maybe four jobs. And they're, they're, you know, doing Uber on the side to their day job. And, you know, they're trying to figure out how to make money selling Amazon products or whatever they're doing to try to support themselves and support their family. And it's this super stress. And then, and then health problems set in, there's this condition called psychosomatic conditions, which is a kind of a real thing. It's sort of weird, but basically the more stress that is on you and and on your mind, it actually can manifest itself through physical symptoms, through joint pains, through it basically causes internal inflammation and can lead to all these other issues that it can increase your risk for heart attack, for strokes, for just lots of other things very fascinating and i think it's basically a condition at least in part at least for some people of just this fiat currency system why because your purchasing power is steadily decreasing year after year after year and so even though you're working your butt off trying to save more than you spend your costs of living are increasing and your purchasing power even though you're working your butt off can actually decrease year after year super stressful. That's the number one cause of divorce uh, in marriages, right? It's financial issues um, uh, and, and just all these other issues that can happen. So what, why, so the coming full circle, Bitcoin is the exact opposite, right? Not only does it not uh, uh, erode your purchasing power over time, it preserves and actually appreciates your purchasing power over time, uh, just sort of by its definition of scarcity. And because of that, um, you can just have a completely different lifestyle. You can quit focusing and stressing out about the short term and you can start looking to the long term. You can start thinking about your kids. You can start thinking about your grandkids. You can start building projects that are not going to just, you know, fall apart tomorrow. Uh, They're going to last for decades and even for centuries. So I, I like to call this future period the age of legends. I think we're on the cusp of the age of legends. Um, similar to sort of the Renaissance period, similar to Michelangelo and the Sistine Chapel and these sorts of things that we're still appreciating these amazing works of art you know, centuries and centuries later, I think we're heading into that period here. And that's what Bitcoin will enable. And I'm really excited for that. Not for, we're going through the hard time, right? I think we're sort of in the the trenches right now in this battle where we're battling. We have just ridiculous comments by Jamie Dimon and Elizabeth Warren. Literally the most powerful people on the planet are fighting against Bitcoin. They're going to lose, but it's going to be ugly and it's going to have, there there will be victims along the way. So we're in sort of the, the hard period, the messy period. What's coming after this, though, maybe 2030s, maybe 2040s, somewhere in there and then beyond, I think is going to be a beautiful new world, honestly. Uh, And I I hate to be like, um, you know, too wishy-washy about it or whatever, whatever I am about it. But I'm really optimistic for what's coming in it. It's hard to see when you're living day to day through it. But if we could just take a step back, if I would love to be able to, you know, time travel to the year 2050 and look and just see how the world is different, because I think it will be massively different. And I think a lot of that will be because of the just the monetary standard of the world, I think we'll be on a Bitcoin standard by that point. And I think it will just improve humanity 10x 100x and uh, and anyways 
that's what gets me up in the morning. That's why I talk about it. I'm not okay. here to make the money anymore. I can make enough money as a doctor and live a really good life and support my family. I'm here to teach people and hopefully make uh, you know this world a better place because of uh, what Bitcoin offers. John? Love it, Dr. Jeff. That was awesome, man. Yeah, um, obviously, I, I feel very similarly. I, I would say I'm one of these crazy people who believes that Bitcoin is not just going to improve our economic system of, of commerce and trade, but because money is this thing that coordinates all human activity, unless you're going to go live a hunter-gatherer lifestyle and not use money. Um, if you're not going to do that, then money affects everything we do. So improving the money, fix the money, fix the world, as Bitcoiners like to say, it's going to improve our systems of education, food, healthcare, science, art, architecture, uh, energy. Um, it's going to improve all of those things. And I, I have a quote that I was just wanted to pull up here. So this is from Ferdinand Lips, not really a, a household name, but he wrote a book called The Gold Wars. And the quote goes, then protecting savings also had another meaning because there was no inflation in this golden world of security. People could live on their savings and concentrate on cultural activities. People are most likely to save when they're confident that they can enjoy the fruits of their labor. The monetary standard is closely linked to the moral standard and as such determines the fate of humanity. So I'm, I'm a huge believer that that, that is true. Um, and and that's, that's why I'm so um, positive about the future. I, I think there is, um, to kind of piggyback on something Dr. Jeff was saying, there's something noteworthy about the fact that the Gilded Age, which was the late 1800s, um, Bitcoiners might be familiar with this period. It's obviously known as the Gilded Age. There's a lot of economic progress. There were a ton of innovations that kind of came from that time period that we still use today. The Gilded Age uh, came during a period of, of sound money. Um, it was pre the Fed. Um, so, you know, keep that in mind. We're still in the gold standard, didn't have central banking. It also came after the U.S. Civil War. So, you know, I am positive for what's to come. The, the flip side of that is, does it need to get worse before it gets better? Hopefully not. Maybe, maybe Bitcoin is this thing where you can kind of introduce this alternate system without the legacy system completely collapsing and having there be tons of conflict. So I definitely am positive for, for the future. Um, and yeah, those are some of my thoughts on the, the better world that I think Bitcoin brings about. And, and it's just an endless rabbit hole. It's, um, you look under the, the iceberg of, of Bitcoin and its monetary history, its economics, its computer science, cryptography, energy markets, game theory, geopolitics. I mean, you can you never get bored learning about Bitcoin. There's literally something fascinating and new that you can learn every single day. Yeah, I love both your guys' answers, guys. Uh, I guess if I could summarize Dr. Jeff's, Bitcoin is the cure and uh, he's a doctor, so... Yep. Kind of knows what he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I actually, I got to run. I got to jump on a flight to uh, Unconfiscatable. Um, if any listeners are there, feel free to say hi uh, if you see me. Um, but thank you guys so much for joining the show. Um, you can follow John at, at John at Swan on X and Dr. Jeff at Valshire Cap. Both are excellent follows uh, for more macro insights like you heard today. I just want to Thank you guys so much for coming on the show and for uh, you know being a part of the Bitcoin community. I learned so much for you guys like every day. Thanks, Sam. Always love being on your show anytime. Yeah, likewise, Sam. Love following your stuff and you too, Dr. Jeff. Great chat with you guys. Thanks, John. Have a great day, guys.
All right. That was another excellent episode of Swan Signal Live. I love talking to those guys. I learned so much from them about macro. Uh, thank you for listening. As always, uh, check out PacificBitcoin.com for tickets to the Pacific Bitcoin Festival today. Uh, it's going to be an amazing time once again. Bigger, better, amazing guests, speakers, uh, festivals, workshops, everything you want to do at a Bitcoin festival. It's important to meet in real life. Shake some Bitcoiners' hands. It's always a fantastic time. Um, and, and just like, comment, uh, repost this episode if you found it helpful. If you uh, Let me know how it can improve, what guests you want to have on the show. Always listening to feedback from you guys, the listeners. Appreciate your support, and I'll see you next week.